Crispy, a podcast of curious conversations with me, your host, Crispin Schroeder. So today I have one more mono crisp episode, just me, and then I got some guests coming on over the next few weeks. We'll get back into some conversations, but today it's just me going to be talking about happiness, the pursuit of happiness. But before I get into that, just want to remind you folks, go to iTunes. You can push pause on this episode. Go to iTunes, look up Extra Crispy Podcast, and if you enjoy what you're hearing here on a regular basis, you find it helpful, compelling, inspirational, life-changing, or whatever, just a way to pass the time, go give us a review on iTunes. Hook us up with some five stars. We really appreciate that. And we'd be thrilled if you like what you're hearing. Share it on social media. Share this episode. Share a previous episode. Turn some friends on to this. Really appreciate it. All right. Let's go to this episode titled The Pursuit of Happiness. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This is the opening of the Declaration of Independence, and really one of my favorite statements to come from the founding fathers of this country, because it is such a simple statement that is so dense with truth. You know, the founding of this country, when, when America first became the United States, it was a rather tenuous union, you know, it was held together. <laughs> but there were a lot of issues that didn't get worked through when this country actually officially became a nation. Issues like slavery that would a few decades later lead to you know, the Civil War. And yet we find embedded within this statement in the Declaration of Independence that there are the seeds for the eventual overthrow of slavery, women getting the right to vote, the end of segregation, and so many other opportunities that have opened up for the citizens of this country. Now, I'm not here to give a civics lesson. I just find that this statement is so profound because it locates some of these unalienable rights as coming to us from our Creator. They don't come from a king or a government or even the law. They're, they're, they, they're much deeper than that. They come from God. And these rights are to live, to live freely, and to pursue happiness. Now, it is this phrase, the pursuit of happiness, that I want to look into today because I've spent a lot of time over the last year just thinking about this. It's interesting that it doesn't say that you're guaranteed happiness, like happiness is not a right, but you have the right to pursue happiness, and I would agree with that. However, (laughs) something I've found about pursuing happiness is that Oftentimes, the way to not find happiness is to actually go looking for it. (laughs) This is a bit of a paradox. Henry David Thoreau once wrote this. He said, happiness is like a butterfly. The more you chase it, 
the more it will elude you. But if you turn your attention to other things, it will come and sit softly on your shoulder. See, the problem with pursuing happiness is that we're all broken people. You know, I mean, if if you make it into adulthood, you have learned how to live in your ego. I mean, part of the formation of the ego is to really get us into adulthood. It's the, the way that you navigate childhood and, and maybe you excel in school or sports or you, you have certain talents or giftings or you develop a sense of humor. And, and this is the thing that, that helps you fit in socially. It gives you a sense of purpose and all these, these different things gives you goals and, and helps you actually emerge into your early 20s as a fully functional adult that can you know participate with society. However, it's in your 20s that, you know, by, by the end of your 20s, you'll, you'll begin to realize that, that much of your living has still been from this place of ego, valuing sort of external ideas, whether that's your reputation, you know, getting your identity, whether it's in getting good grades or your talents or your giftings, all these things, that's perfectly fine. But you, oftentimes your ego really keeps you from looking within and realizing that there's a whole lot more to you. The, the analogy I've seen used many times before is if you think of an iceberg, there's the, the part of the iceberg that you see, and then there's the rest of the iceberg underneath the surface. And we humans are kind of like that. You know, there's the part of us that, that we are conscious of that other people encounter, but oftentimes that's like the ego. That's the surface stuff. And, you know, psychology has has really come to discover that so much of what goes on in our lives is beneath the surface. It's even in a subconscious realm. So that iceberg, you may see this little piece sticking above the ocean. You may think, ah, oh, that's just a little piece of ice. Well, you're only seeing 10 to 15% of that iceberg. And so when it comes to pursuing happiness, if you're pursuing happiness when you're living mainly in your ego... <laughs> Um, that happiness is going to be fleeting. You're going to think like, if I just get this job or if I just get uh, this person to fall in love with me, or if I can just achieve this, then I will be happy. And we pursue those things thinking that they will bring us happiness. But it's kind of like, I don't know how many of y'all got cats, but we got three cats in our house. And it's our, our latest addition to the cat family has become my cat. My daughter got it. (laughs) She's in college. So now I'm that cat's person. But this little cat, Kenji, about a year old now, and uh, not even a year old, but it's, it's quite interesting to watch this little predator as it, you know, is hunting after a lizard or a bug or a squirrel. The thing is with a cat they get so much pleasure out of the pursuit, but when they actually finally get the thing that they've been chasing, it's kind of a letdown. (laughs) If you ever see a cat like actually get the lizard, you know, after they've been torturing it and then, you know, the lizard finally just was like, forget it. I give up. The cat moves on, you know, it's, it's not fun anymore. It's, it's actually the pursuit that was fun, but the actual reality, once you get to it, it's kind of like, eh, it wasn't all that you made it to be in your mind. Not to mention the other side of the pursuit of happiness is oftentimes 
we have great pain inside of us, or, or we're, we're living in a very painful situation. There are issues beneath the surface of our life that we don't want to face, and maybe these have come to us uh, b- because of the, the wrongs of others. Maybe we've, we've experienced abuse or some kind of pain on the inside, some, some kind of relationship that is, has caused betrayal and you name it, whatever difficult, painful reality that is present in your life, oftentimes the pursuit of happiness is a way of avoiding that painful reality beneath the surface. There, it, it's, it's interesting if you look into some of the scientific studies on addiction over the last few decades, there has really been a change in the understanding of why some people seem to get addicted and other people don't. I mean, I think, as I've mentioned on this podcast before, I think everybody is an addict in in in, in some sense. You know, we always have things that we kind of medicate our lives with, but a lot of people, it's it's perfectly socially acceptable types of things, and and some things are more healthy. Like if you're addicted to running, that's that's probably not a bad thing. <laughs> but the traditional thinking when it came to addiction, now this was based on, I, th- I think these studies were back in the 1950s, where they would take a rat and put it in a cage and the rat would have its regular bottle of water and then a bottle of water that's laced with cocaine or heroin. And what they found time and time again is the, the rat alone in a cage would get addicted to the cocaine water or the heroin water and would basically die because of neglecting themselves. They would get so addicted that, that they would just forsake all other rat activities and just die from their addiction. So coming out of this study, the popular conception was that people get addicted to addictive substances. Like the, the thing that is that causes addiction is that heroin is a highly addictive substance, so you do it and you get addicted. So the power is actually in the substance. However, you know, once you fast forward a bit, you know, in the early 70s, as the Vietnam War was still going on, but but beginning to come to an end, there was a lot of fear in this country that there was going to be a huge heroin epidemic from all these soldiers returning from Vietnam who were doing heroin over there. What they actually found, though, is most of these soldiers who were doing heroin on a regular basis, once they got back to the United States, they were around their families, they were maybe beginning to work meaningful jobs, their life was not under constant threat. They were able to quit heroin, cold turkey, no rehab, no symptoms, just quit. Not to mention, if you've, all of us have family members or maybe even ourselves, a lot of people have done heroin that you know. A lot of people who don't look like heroin, they've they've done heroin in a hospital. It's called morphine. That's high-grade heroin. And most people go in for a surgical procedure you know, they, they are given heroin as part of the anesthetic or part of the recovery or maybe part of the pain even leading into it. But as soon as they're released from the hospital and they go through their prescription, they just go back to normal. They don't have a heroin addiction. Now, some people actually do develop an addiction. But there was a researcher by the name of Bruce Alexander, a Canadian psychologist who 
saw that there was a problem in the initial studies on rats and addiction. He said, yeah, a rat by himself in a cage? Of course he's going to do drugs. That's a sucky situation for a rat. That's like rat hell. You know, you got no social interaction. Of course, what else is a rat going to do? He seemed to think that, that one of the fundamental issues in addiction was not the substance itself, but more of the context of one's life. So he did a famous study between 1978 and 1981 that was, that's become known as the Rat Park Studies. And you can, there's some great videos on YouTube where you can uh, learn about this. But in the Rat Park Study, they, they basically replicated the, the experiments from the 50s, except they changed something fundamental about it. Instead of putting a rat alone in a cage, they created this rat park, and it was everything that rats like. There was stuff for the rats to climb on. There's other rats that they could socialize with, rat community, and it was just a, a healthy, thriving environment for a rat. And they then offered the rats either water laced with cocaine or heroin and regular water. And it turns out most of the rats would try the drug water. I think they all tried the drug water but none of them became addicted to it. And kind of the point that, that was made through this experiment is that if you have relational connection in your life, if you don't feel isolated and alone, if you feel connected with others in your peer group, if you have meaningful uh, experiences in your day-to-day -day reality, then you're not going to want to do drugs. You're not going to get... Uh, addicted to something, even if it's out there, even if you have the option to get addicted, you won't get addicted because really addiction has more with trying to cover up or, or, or push down some painful reality that we don't want to see within us or, or in our circumstances. And I can certainly testify to this same tendency within my own life. You know, times in my life where I've been prone to drinking a whole lot or eating a whole lot of really crappy food or just, you know, vegging out, watching TV all the time. Oftentimes, if I actually look at how my life was in those seasons, because sometimes they were seasons that lasted a long time, oftentimes there, I, I felt stressed out. I felt isolated. I felt disconnected from other people. I felt that I wasn't doing something that, that had meaning in it. And so... It's just reaching out to these other things to, to kind of medicate. So I say all this because the, the, the pursuit of happiness, if you're in a place where you have, you know, pain in your life or your context is, you know, you feel very disconnected, then the pursuit of happiness for you is often just going to be a way of not facing the stuff within you. And I think that this is where both Christianity and, and even Buddhism tend to get at the stuff on the inside in a, in a much better way. This is why I, f I find Christianity very compelling, is that, you know, right in the middle of it, we see Jesus, this, you know, who we, in, in the Christian narrative, we believe is, is the God who existed eternally as Christ steps into our world becomes one of us, faces our reality, everything that we face, and ultimately faces uh, persecution, suffering, and even death. But it doesn't just stop with death. It ends in resurrection. 
And that's really the hope of the Christian message is not that you can escape. And, 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 and I say the hope of the Christian message. You may not have heard this before because in our world today, you've got the prosperity gospel that says, you know, if you just believe enough, you're going to be healthy, wealthy, have whiter teeth, fresher breath, and, uh, you know, life's just going to get better and better. But that whole idea is really not a Christian one. <laughs> what we see in the Christian story, I mean, it's right there with Jesus. It's certainly in the lives of the uh, disciples, the early apostles, is that it's not like following Jesus or having the right beliefs is going to exempt you from suffering, but it will provide you a way forward in which your tr suffering can actually lead to your own personal transformation, your own resurrection, so to speak. And I think that's one of the most compelling things about Christianity is that it doesn't say that you just do all this and suffering is going to go away. You can encounter God in the midst of suffering. You can, you can actually face painful realities in a way that doesn't mean the end of you, but actually your transformation. I think a good analogy for this, again, I'm going to use an analogy from the world of music like I did on my last episode, but when I think about music, music at a fundamental level is about tension. And when I say a fundamental level, I mean I'm saying like actual instruments. You look at any stringed instrument, uh, strings on a guitar or a piano, or a violin, or a cello, the, the reason that they can make this tone is that they are held in tension. You know, too little tension on a guitar string, and you, you pluck the string, and it'll just sound all flabby, and it won't make much of a tone. Too much tension, and the, the tone won't sustain much. You know, it won't ring out. It'll, it'll start to sound kind of brittle, and, and you're likely to break that string if you pick it very much because there's too much tension. But when you get a guitar string in the right amount of tension, the sweet spot between too loose and too tight, that string will resound a tone and that tone will ring out. And I think there's something to this you know, even in our own lives, oftentimes we equate, equate happiness with the alleviating of tension. How many people, you know, this is one of the most popular conceptions in our world is that, you know, you work a job for 30 or 40 years and then you retire so you can just kind of be on vacation, you know, for the rest of your life. And the reality is a lot of people who've lived that way they finally get to the point where they're ready to retire. They've been fantasizing about, you know, I'm just going to be out on a boat all the time or I'm going to be sipping pina coladas down on a beach in Costa Rica. And then you actually get there. And then after a few days of that, you're bored <laughs> and maybe even depressed. This thing that you've held out as this dream that you've been pursuing, all the things that you've been deferring along the way, now you finally get there and it's like, eh, I'm bored. I'm depressed. My life feels meaningless. I think there's a lot of people that once they retire, they, they feel that way. Because here's part of the problem. If you've lived your life that way, you have been formed 
by that. We are much more formed by what we actually do day to day than anything that we uh, believe, you know, just in uh, intellectual place. You are formed by what you do. This is fundamental to how we learn as human beings. We, we learn a lot more by the things that we do than things that we just watch or listen to or read. So coming into retirement, if you've lived your whole life that way, you've been formed by what you have done. And so you're, you're not, you actually haven't been formed in a way to where you could even really settle down and appreciate the very things that you have been hoping would, would bring you happiness. And it's not just retirement. We can think in just regular everyday life. We, how many times do you get into situations that are stressful and difficult and you just start fantasizing about something else? Like, man, if I just had this awesome boat, I'd go out on the lake every weekend and I could just chill and, and enjoy life. Or if I could just get this RV and travel around the country or, or if I could just move away from all these distractions and just go start an or, organic farm in the country or maybe you start fantasizing about another person. Man, this this woman over here, man, she's so beautiful and and uh, I love her personality or this guy over here, man, if if I was just with him, then then I would be happy. And this is something that that advertisers really prey upon. They just reinforce that all the time, you know, like like this thing is going to bring you happiness. But if you ever act on those fantasies, and some of them are much more destructive than others, but I think we've all had that experience before where like you think you, you've, you've developed this whole fantasy in your mind. If I just get this boat or this car or this thing, then it's going to be all happy. And the reality is when you get there, that boat stays in your driveway most of the time. That RV that you thought was going to bring you happiness puts you $60,000, $70,000 in debt and you finally discover that actually traveling around in an RV is difficult and there's other things <laughs> involved. Or moving to the country. Uh, organic farming is a lot harder than living in the city. Or a painful lesson that many people have had to, to learn. You know, that, that person that you were willing to sacrifice your marriage for that that fan that person you fantasized about like once you've actually hooked up with them and you know you then you start seeing oh well there's a little bit more to this they're just a person with their own baggage and this really didn't answer anything on the inside the paradox of happiness is that oftentimes seeking happiness does not mean finding much more than temporary pleasure that keeps one from lasting deep contentment within. However, facing what one most fears head-on actually results in a deep, abiding sense of joy and contentment within because happiness moves from an external gratification to an inward reality. This is a very different way of looking at things. So this is, in a sense, living intention. This is being that 
tuned guitar string that is living in this place of tension to where you can actually make a beautiful sound in the process. Instead of trying to alleviate the tension in your life, facing the tension, facing the dark things within yourself, facing some of the the painful realities that you don't want to see, as crazy as that is, this really kind of ties into the, the whole resurrection story it is by facing things by by you know kind of dying in so so to speak that we experience transformation and that transformation that we experience is worth a whole lot more than temporary happiness instead of avoiding difficult painful realities when we face it we become transformed I love what C.S. Lewis once wrote. He says, if you look for truth, you may find comfort in the end. If you look for comfort, you will not get either comfort or truth, only soft soap and wishful thinking to begin, and in the end, despair. It is much better to face harsh and painful realities, not saying it's fun and it ain't even happy, a little bit I've done of this in my life. It's never fun. I never look forward to doing it. Yet, when I face these things, when I have to die to some things within me, when I have to actually be honest about some issues within myself or issues with other people, when I bring those to the light, when I start working through them, then I'm changed in the process. And even my definition of happiness is changed as well. And that's really one of the reasons that pursuing happiness is kind of a fool's errand because you're likely to treat happiness as just this thing that actually avoids reality. It doesn't live in the moment. It doesn't actually work in reality. But if you face painful realities head on, if you learn to live in a place of tension and and value that tension as not something you're trying to alleviate, but, but something that actually helps you live a meaningful life, well, then even your definition of happiness is transformed. Instead of this external uh, pursuit that that really ignores painful realities, now you found contentment, you found acceptance, you found a deep abiding sense of joy and peace. And that is worth a whole lot more. Now, the other side of this pursuing happiness is that oftentimes the happiness that we are pursuing is the definition of happiness that has been handed to us, that we have really not grappled with. We're just taking, uh, you know, the, the happiness that has been defined for us, maybe by our families or by marketers and advertisers, uh, the, the, the happiness that is valued kind of at a societal level, you know, getting the, the house with the white picket fence and the, you know, two car garage and 1.2 kids or whatever it is. <laughs> This goes back to something that I was talking about on the previous episode, uh, resonance with truth. I think 
you know, one of the difficult questions to ask, and I have to ask myself this from time to time, is how I'm living my life, my job, my work, the things that I'm pouring myself into, am I doing something that actually resonates with what's going on in the core of my being, my being, my, my values at the deepest level? Am I living true to those? Or am I just doing something because it makes sense pragmatically, uh, economically, uh, or for other people? Because, again, if you're really going to be truly happy, if you, you, you're not going to find true happiness by avoiding these things in you that really matter to you. You may be successful monetarily, you may be successful in your position and your prominence and all these things that society values and yet withering away on the inside. Uh, as, as Jesus once said, you know, what's it, what, what profit is it for a person to gain the whole world and lose themselves in the process? And so I think a good few things to reflect on right now uh, as I close this today is are there things that you are pursuing for happiness that are a way of just avoiding painful realities within? What is the thing that you are most afraid to do right now? Maybe you ought to come up with a plan on how to engage that thing <laughs> and, and trust that in taking some steps to engage that aspect of your life, even if they're small steps, over time you will come to grow through those things and experience change in your life. The second question is, what are you involved in right now, whether it's your job, maybe certain relationships, uh, certain things that you're doing right now that really have more to do with the expectations of other people or somebody else's uh, idea of success and happiness, and you're doing these things while you're ignoring something fundamental on the inside of you, your, your core values, the, the resonance with truth within you, you keep ignoring that. Maybe it is time to start thinking through what would it look like to live in such a way where I could honor and validate these things that I feel so strongly on the inside of me. Now that may be a scary thing, you know, particularly if it's your job, <laughs> um, but ultimately, it is much better to go ahead and face that fear, even if it may mean a decrease in your paycheck or maybe the approval of some other people to actually validate that thing on the inside of you is super, super important. So I think those are a couple of things to reflect on, certainly things that I'm reflecting on on an ongoing basis. I just want to bring somebody else into my pain, so... Now, at the beginning of this episode, I used the analogy of a guitar string, you know, as a great metaphor for living intention, you know, having enough challenges and, and stress in our lives that we're just not bored and just doing nothing, but um, also having enough rest in our life and time for contemplation so that we can actually bring something to our vocations. Uh, I want to close by kind of hitting music from from a little bit different way. I think one of the reasons why music speaks to people so much and is such a place of people encountering 
transcendence and truth and beauty is that oftentimes the people who are writing the songs, that's exactly the, the where the lyrics come from. I think it's quite a beautiful thing that in the Bible, the biggest book in the whole Bible is a collection of song lyrics, the book of Psalms. And many of these psalms that you read, they're not um, the type of stuff you can even talk about in church. <laughs> they are dealing with raw emotions and questions and doubts and you know, just trying to navigate all this stuff. And yet, I, I, I see in the psalms, particularly maybe just as a songwriter, I see that this honesty that comes forth in lyrics, and we don't get to hear the music of the Psalms, but this honesty that comes forth in these lyrics is a way of living in that place of tension. For me, one of the best ways to navigate, you know, to, to live in this tension is actually to turn my, you know, the painful realities that I'm facing or my questions or whatever it is, to, to turn that into song. There is something in the, in the process of writing a song. It requires reflecting over my life, reflecting on the world around me, and then you know, composing words and setting those words to music. And the whole process is very therapeutic for me and, and really helps me to live in that tension because it's a way of making meaning out of the things that I'm facing. So I'm going to close today's podcast by uh, letting you guys hear a song that I wrote last week. And this is just an example from my own life of, of navigating some of these concepts, uh, coming at them from a, a little bit different perspective, you know, the, the creative side of things. And um, I hope as you listen to this that you enjoy it. This is just a demo I recorded here in my studio, but uh, the song is called Dreaming and Waking. Through the dreaming 
I'm awake. 